Amen. Let's stand all over the house this evening. And let's get ready to worship the Lord. We're going to sing an old hymn of the church, The Unclouded Day. Let's worship the Lord tonight.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we just love you and we glorify you and we magnify your name tonight. Father, Lord, we know there are some out that are sick, Lord, some battling flu, some battling some other issues in their body. We know some are traveling due to work today, Lord. We know some are working even right now as we speak. Oh, Lord, but we know that your presence that was with us this morning is the same presence that can be in this house tonight. And Father, Lord, we pray that everything that we do in the remaining portion of this service will be for the glory and honor of the kingdom of God. So, Father, we commit this service into the loving arms of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Together, the people of God said amen. Amen. Now, you take just a few minutes and greet those around you in the Lord at this time. Let's stand back all over the house this evening. Those that are joining us online, we welcome you to church tonight. We're going to sing some old praise choruses and songs that you know and that are very familiar. But let's worship the Lord as we sing tonight about being part of the family of God. Let's sing it. Well, I'm so
Father, we know that it's your amazing grace that we are here today. Because we know, God, that it's nothing that we could have done on our own accord or our own self that granted us salvation. But it's all because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And because of that grace, God, our chains have been broken and set free. And so, we, Lord, we sing this anthem of praise to you today as a song of a prayer. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace, twas grace that taught. special about the name of Jesus that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are God to the glory of God the Father. So God, today we ask today that you would be in this house today. 
Just sing it, just the voices. His name is Jesus. 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 There's just something about that name. He's a
Father, Lord, we come before you tonight. Father, we realize there is something special about the name of Jesus. Father, as we get ready here in just a moment to break the bread of life, Father, I pray today, God, that you would allow us to hear from heaven. God, you would speak to our hearts. Father, Lord, we ask, God, that those watching online or those that are in-house today, that they would feel the presence of Almighty God in a powerful and a special way. Father, we thank you for the Spirit of God we felt this morning, and God, we honor the Spirit of God we feel in this house tonight. Father, we commit the remaining portion of this service to the loving arms and Savior of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Together, the people of God said amen. Amen. And you may be seated if you can in the presence of the Lord. While you're seated, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Jude. The book of Jude, chapter number 1. In fact, Jude only really has one chapter, so it's really basically just the verses, Jude 3 through 5, but most Bible scholars, when they write it, will write Jude 1, 3 through 5, or but it will be in the book of Jude. We'll be in verses 3 through verse 5. Jude chapter number 1, verse 3 through 5. Once you have it, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of the Word of God so that we can honor God's Word today. Here's what the Word of the Lord says to the people of God. Beloved, I was very diligent to write you concerning our common salvation. I found it necessary to write you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. With the help of the Lord, I want to talk just for a few moments tonight before we let you go to your place of rest. The fight for faith. Can I tell you that whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you live under a rock and have just been missing, the church as we know it is in a fight for our faith. You know, the nation that we live in that was the, uh, the epitaph, if you will, was one nation under God. We are not nearly as much under God 
as we like to sometimes think we are. Most of the time, yes, everything is under the umbrella of God, but the nation that we live in that was supposed to be a righteous nation has kind of drifted away from the things of God. And sadly enough, because of the things of this world, sadly enough, churches are beginning, if they're not careful, to drift with the swaying of the tide with the world and away from God. In a few minutes, I'm going to bring up a word that's going to be a very biblical terminology and a word that you probably hear mostly only in church circles. But I want to tell you that there is a great apostasy in our church world today. There are lots of people who go to church, listen to the word, but their heart is not where their their heart is far from the things of this earth, of this world, and this of this word. I'm telling you, your sons, your daughters, your grandchildren, your great grandchildren, not just this local body, but churches across this globe. They're going to, in these last days, have to contend, as the word uses in the King James, for their faith. They're going to have to fight for what they know and what they believe. People don't just accept God like they used to. Just tell them a few good sermons. They come flooding to the altars. No, no, no. It's a whole lot harder now to convince people to give up their sinful life to turn to an all-loving Savior. But that doesn't mean the Word of God is still not worth fighting for. It's still worth fighting for. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. I pray today that you would speak to our hearts. God, you would allow the words of the Lord to, to make residency in our hearts. Lord, I pray, God, that you would let what we are about to share with this body of believers, God, let it not just be a formality of words that we did, but Lord, I pray today that you would allow it to saturate. I pray that you would marinate. And God, it would have a concentration in our hearts. Father, I pray that every man, woman, boy, or girl under the sound of my voice, tonight God will hear from heaven. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name. Maybe seated in the presence of the Lord, if you can at this time. The fight for faith. There is something dangerous and sinister, if you will, happening to the church of Jesus Christ. The word I shared with you all ago is the word that I want to take as the focal point, And that word is, there is a great apostasy. There have been many pastors, preachers, evangelists, Sunday school teachers, orators of God's word that have taught many a lesson, wrote many a book, had many a seminars, had many conference sessions on the great apostasy of the church. The reality of it is that just because you go to a seminar or just because you buy somebody's self-help book on how to not live in the state of apostasy. And just because you go through all these self-help programs doesn't mean that you're not free, if you will, from the state of apostasy. In fact, there are many men and women that I would surmise to you that there are many men and women who go to church every Sunday 
some service, some churches that have Sunday night service, even Sunday nights. Churches that have midweek Bible studies, whether it's in-house or small groups or connect groups off campus, those that meet midweek, I would contend with you today that there are many people that go to church semi-regularly or regularly, but they're not living the fight of faith. They're not living the Word of God. In fact, I have had many conversations with many of folks, and some that during my tenure here, some at other tenures where I've served, where everybody on the outside thought everything was good. But text messages or phone calls or visits to the office would say otherwise when they'd walk into the door and they'd say, Pastor, I've been going to church for two years, four years, ten years, and I feel like I'm in a black hole. I try to lift my hands. I, I try to worship, but I feel like I'm no further closer to God than I was when I was a sinner. Something's happened. I don't, I don't know how I want it, but I just seem to not ever be able to obtain it. And they live in this dichotomy of, of struggling with their wayward lifestyle, their sinful lifestyle, the ways of this world, but in the same token, they long for the things of God, but somehow they want to marry the two rather than have a separation of the two. And what ends up happening is some folks say, well, I can, why can't I have just my fun? And, you know, one, one old pro, Chinese proverb said this, you can't have your cake and eat it too. The reality of that is, is that sometimes everybody wants it their way and they don't want it any other way. But I want to tell you, God is not Burger King. You can't always have it your way. Burger King doesn't even always let you have it your way, even though they tell you you can have it your way. I've been to Burger King and ordered and said, I, don't, I want a Whopper with no onions, extra pickle, with a small fry and a drink. I get the Whopper. I get about halfway up the road. I have a Whopper with no cheese, extra onions, no pickles, and a raw and a medium fry, and no drink. That was what I ordered. I ordered a Coke, and I got Diet Coke. I, I didn't even get it my way, even though they said I could have it my way. If you go to Monk's Corner Burger King, you'll be lucky if they even answer you and tell you you can have it your way. I've been there with coupons before, and they told me coupons from their store that they told me aren't valid, and they issued them from their store. So you don't always get it your way. But I am learning, and, and, and I say I, I, I use that in a, in a broad sense. Pastors, preachers, teachers, even many of you that are sitting in this room, you probably have already figured it out. There's a lot of people that they don't mind God as long as God doesn't want to change them. We're going to be quiet tonight, so we'll just be here for a while. The reality of it is there's a lot of people, they have no problem with church. They're all about organized religion because it makes them feel good. They go to church. They look like the good mamas. They look like the good daddies. They look like the great American nuclear family. They took little Johnny, little Susie to church. But when the preacher starts preaching where they're living or where the Sunday school teacher starts teaching where they're living or when conviction starts knocking on their door, all of a sudden them and God aren't so good anymore. You can always tell this most of the time by church attendance. Now, I'm not here bashing Sunday morning versus Sunday night attendance, but I'll tell you how sometimes you can tell. As long as you're preaching God is good, God is great, blessings are flowing, and all that stuff, they'll keep coming. 
You start talking about don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss, don't have premarital sex, don't decide to lie on your neighbor, don't cheat with your neighbor's wife, don't have infidelity. All of a sudden, the crowd thins out. Because people, they say they want the truth, but the Bible says in the last days they will turn aside from sound doctrine and with itching ears they'll turn unto fables because they really don't want the truth because reality is they like living where they're living. And the reality of it is if God calls them out of darkness into their marvelous light, they're going to have to let go of some things and they're not ready to let them go. But can I tell you, those watching online or those in-house or those that may stream this later, you cannot get to heaven by doing it your way. The Bible says there is a way that seems right unto man, but the very end leads unto destruction. The only way. Jesus said it the most eloquently he could in John 14, I believe it's verse 6. He said, Thomas said, how are we going to know? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. You can try any other method you want, but God's way is the only way to get to heaven. That's it. There is no alternative route. There is no detour. When you try to put heaven in your GPS, there's not going to be detours and tell you, well, you know what, you don't have to go through Jesus. You can go through giving more tithes and offerings. You can go through from more churches. Than this. No, no, no. When it's all said and done, your life might take detours, but until you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, you don't go through the pearly gates. You just don't. The book of Jude is warning the people of God of this very debilitating word apostasy in the King James Version and the New King James Version Jude uses the term earnestly contend for the faith earnestly contend in the Greek language in the original language that word earnestly contend comes from a word that means to agonize in great distress to agonize. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or to admit this, but I wonder if anybody in this room has ever felt the weight of agony. Not just a little, my feelings got hurt a little bit, I cried a little bit, but I mean really felt, <coughs> hold on, well glory, I just swallowed something the wrong way. Well, I don't know how that happened. <coughs> Excuse me. Earnestly contend for the faith. To agonize. That word literally means to be in travail. <coughs> now I'm not going to ask you to admit this, but agony is never fun. Oftentimes, when you're agonizing, you have what they call Ugly cries. Anybody ever had an ugly cry? <coughs> ugly cries. Man, something is in my throat. I do apologize. I'm not sure what's going on. I don't know. To agonize an ugly cry. Ugly cry, I call them the Adam raccoon eyes. Some of you ever had Adam raccoon eyes? You know it's when the mascara is running, when you're not as pretty as you started out that day? <laughs> I heard a laugh. Somebody's seen that before. Hope it wasn't about their wife. The reality of it is to agonize is not a fun experience. 
Jude says to the people of God, it was necessary to exhort the people to earnestly contend for faith. The first thing I want to point out to you is there's a danger when you talk about the word apostasy. There's a danger. Notice verse 4. Something is stuck in this throat. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Notice the word next. Ungodly men. Ungodly men. Anybody ever seen the old Tarzan movies? Anybody ever watched Tarzan? Three of you. Praise the Lord. So somebody will get this reference. In the old Tarzan movies, not the <coughs> new and improved versions, in the old Tarzan movies, there were these alligators that would slip into the water without Tarzan being aware of their presence. They would slip in the water without a ripple. This is the same, I believe, illustration Jude is talking about when he uses the word crept in. People creep into church, but they don't make it obvious. You know, it's like the wheat among the tares. There are times that they, people will come to church and they'll get in with good with the preacher. They'll get in good with the singers. They'll get in good with the leaders. But they have an ulterior motive. It's not to advance the kingdom of God. It is actually the opposite. It is to cause confusion to the body of Christ. More often than not, what will happen is they creep in. They slide into your church. They start getting involved. And they begin to, if you will, make their presence known. Another way you could say that is they crept in or they came in through the side door. You know, the side door of a building is not the front door. Everybody comes through the front door. That's where you see everybody in the great scheme of things. The side door is when people come in not to be noticed. And people exit those doors not to be noticed. I believe that that's what happens in the great apostasy of the church. There are men and women who have over time infiltrated what we call the body of Christ and they have slept in or crept in and what they've done is they've allowed themselves to align with God's people but slowly one by one they begin to drift the people of God a little further and further from the faith. How do I know this? Because you can see it in churches all the time. You'll see a, a group of people that'll come in. They'll, get, they'll jump right in. They'll get right involved. And slowly over time, they start turning the hearts of the people away from the body of Christ to their own agendas and their own ideologies. It's the same a tactic that lawyers and attorneys will use in a court case. Oftentimes, an attorney will sometimes, I love watching law and order, I love watching all of the criminal 
shows like that. And, and the attorney sometimes will plant thoughts. They'll put somebody on the witness stand and they'll start planting thoughts. And they'll start telling things and they know that the other attorney is going to yell objection. They know it. They already know what's going to happen. They know the judge is going to say sustained or overruled. They know it. They know it. But you know what they do? They do it anyway. You know why? It's a tactic. What they're doing is they're planning a thought not for the other attorney. They already know they're going to yell objection. They're not doing it to confuse the judge. They're doing it because there are 12 people sitting on the side. And all they're wanting to do is to get them to think about it for a minute. That's what they're paid to do. They will try it. And at the time, it'll seem like, what a dumb move. How stupid could that attorney be? But it's not really that insignificant because later in the rest of their argument or down the road, they'll circle back to it and weave it in their presentation so over time, the people that are sitting on that 12 juror stand, when they go into the, what they call that deliberation room, their mind starts wondering. Isn't that really what Satan did in the Garden of Eden? I mean, what Satan started out with didn't seem too significant at the time, really. Why did God tell you you couldn't eat of the tree? Well, he said we can't eat it because it's, it's, it was designed, that's the only tree we can't eat of. Well, did God really say that? Yes, he told me we couldn't eat of that. You ever wondered if God didn't want you to eat from that tree because he was afraid? If you ever ate from that tree, you might be as wise as God. You might know more than God. You might see things differently than God sees things. <clears throat> what if you could be like God? And you know what started happening to Eve? The wheels started turning. She knew, she quoted God's word to the devil. God said we can't eat it, can't have it. God already said it. But the devil just kept asking questions. He never said, eat it because I'm going to cause you to sin. He just planted a seed and let her mind start wondering. And the reality of it is that's the same way in the world today with the great apostasy of the church. Apostasy will lead to destruction. It absolutely will lead to devastation. Apostasy is deadly. Let me give you a couple things about destruction and deadly things. Apostasy is that thing where Jude is trying to give a warning. Hello, don't follow this. Don't follow this false doctrine and ideology. Or it'll, it'll ruin you. <clears throat> but you know what would happen? Some in the church would not take heed to his warning. All throughout the life, there are countless stories of people who didn't take warning. Let me give you a couple. Aboard the great vessel that was setting sail that we like to refer to as the Titanic, prior to striking an iceberg, the captain of that boat was given a radio warning that they were going into iceberg-laden waters. He was told where they were headed by warning. But he did not heed the warning and proceeded forward, costing more than 1,500 people, and including himself, their life. He knew, he was told, don't go. 
He was told it was dangerous, and he said, charge on it. December the 7th, 1941, Sergeant Joseph Lockhart reported to his supervising officer that a large flight of airplanes was approaching Hawaii, and he saw it on the radar screen. Sergeant Lockhart, Lockhart was told by his commanding officer, don't worry about it, they're probably just friendly aircraft. Within minutes, planes were arriving from the Japanese aircraft carrier, and they bombed what we call Pearl Harbor. He was given a warning. The captain said, hey, the sergeant said, hey, captain, I see they're coming. It's coming. But they said, no, it's not, nothing to worry about. Yale University. It began in 1701 as a Christian university. Yale president at the time, Timothy Dwight, advised in 1814, Christ is the only true and living way to access, to access God. They had conduct rules. Everyone shall consider the main end of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ. Seek the Lord to give wisdom. Everyone shall exercise himself in reading the Bible twice a day. Yale and Harvard. Princeton insisted that their faculty be convinced of the necessity of religious experience for salvation. But yet today, if you go to Yale, Princeton, or Harvard, God will not be found on that campus. Think about that. John Witherspoon said this, Cursed be all learning that is contrary to the cross of Christ. Oh, how far down the slopes of compromise we have gone. Apostasy has reached its way into many churches. And there's nothing anybody seems to care about it. There was a secretary of a predominant denomination who served on their mission board. Said this. We have all given we have given up all hope on saving the current generation. Our efforts now are directed towards the next. No more missionaries will be sent out to evangelize. Our hope is just to educate people. That's coming from a church denomination. Not evangelize them, just educate them. One minister in a predominant denomination said this, I do not believe in the doctrine of sanctification by blood. Salvation by the blood of Christ is a gospel of the butcher shop. That's the preacher. His statement. Someone else said this. Those who recorded the virgin birth of Christ were doubtlessly influenced by fairy tale fables. That's leaders in church organizations. With sentiments like this in the world, we must heed to Jude's warning that we are in a fight for faith. We absolutely are fighting the fight of faith. There's also, though, the description of apostasy. One of those things is character. Look at verse 4 again. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned... The grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ into lewdness 
and deny only the Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ. Ungodly men. It means a person without reverential awe of God. It means they just don't reverence God. Notice verse 8. If you have your Bibles, look at verse 8. Likewise, all these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Apostates have no reverence for God or authority. They do not like divine order. They do not like authority. They despise it. Conduct. What's the conduct of apostasy? No restraint. Lewdness. Unbridled lust. Apostates will argue the grace of God is a license to sin. They will excuse the righteous of being judged. They will excuse, um, excuse me, accuse the righteous of being judgmental and bigoted. Have you ever heard anybody in the world we're living in today? Say that people in the church are narrow-minded, they're not relevant, they're not embracive, they're not, you know, they'll say things like, you're too judgmental, I don't go to church because the church is too judgmental, I don't go to church because they're narrow-minded, they don't, they don't, they're not embracive, they're not relevant. What they're really saying is, they live in a state of apostasy. They don't want true authority and order. How do I know this? Because church organizations are ordaining same-sex marriages, not only ordaining the union of those marriages, but placing them in leadership within their denomination. You call it what you want to. That's a state of apostasy. It's contrary to the word of God, yet being embraced by major denominational influences. Their denominations churches that don't take a stand against abortion or the loss of life of innocent children. That's a state of apostasy. God's word is very clear that life begins at conception and all things are made by the hand of God, yet they live in this false sense of reality. They deny God. Liberalism has sabotaged the Bible. They've humanized God. They've defied man. They've Minimize sin, they've glorified science, they've glamorized sex, they have terrorized society. They just don't care. The state of apostasy is not out for anything more than to destroy. You look up that word apostasy, it is not a positive definition. But I want to tell you that there's also a destruction of apostasy. Verse 5 says, but I want to remind you, though you already knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Children of Israel. They had all come out of Egypt, but the apostates were destroyed, though they had experienced leaving Egypt. What do you mean? Lotus, what he said. That having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward, he destroyed. Destruction. 
those who did not believe. Who's he talking about? He's talking about that group that came out of Egypt. And they were all about leaving Pharaoh's bondage and in slavery. But when they got out into the wilderness, they decided they were not grateful to God anymore. And they lost their reverence of his name. They lost, they started making golden calves and idols. They began starting complaining about God and fussing about, well, why'd God bring us out here to let us die? And, and long story short, what they did was they basically turned their back, if you will, on God to the point Moses is ready to, you know, basically give up on them and God's ready to kill them. And then Moses is defending them and telling God, don't do it because what will the nations of the world think? And finally, God has had enough of their contrary spirits. And he makes a decree that he stands on. He said, there will be no one that is, under the, uh, that is over the age of 20 years old from this day forward that will enter into the promised land. All the mamas, daddies, grandmamas, grandpappies, all of them will get to the border. They'll get to the threshold. They'll get to the cusp of the promised land, but I'm going to let them die right on the edge of their breakthrough. I'm going to let them die at the edge of their miracle because I have had enough of their, if you will, ungrateful, unreverent attitudes. What does he do? Outside of, of the family of two men, one by the name of Joshua who would assume the reins after Moses and another one by the name of Caleb which are the only two of the original 12 spies that said God could do it. Everybody else in that land, they wandered for 40 years into the desert until God had let them all die before he took the next generation into the land. One of the things about apostasy that happens is that if you're not careful Apostasy will cost you and make you miss out on the blessings of God. And the next generation or another generation will reap the benefits of God that were intended for you as well. But I don't want to leave you just with the depressionness of that. We know Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed despite their beauty. We know all of these things, but I want to help you understand that you don't have to stay in a spirit of apostasy. You don't have to live in that forever. There is a defense. There is a way to combat the spirit of apostasy. Jude says the best way is to earnestly contend, or as we term, fight for the faith. How do you fight for faith? Well, first of all, you have to study faith. You have to know what faith is. Hebrews tells us faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What is faith? That, that, that's the very nature. Some folks, if you told them you were reading an epistle written by an apostle, they wouldn't know which one's which. They'd be so confused. It's not so much about knowing all the Greek and Hebrew but you must know that God's Word is, a, is the inerrant Word of God. God's Word is not fallible. God's Word never fails. It is the inerrant Word of God. It's God's Word and nobody else can duplicate it but God. It's His words. You must proclaim the deity of Christ. I said to you earlier, there is no other name under heaven and earth by which men must be saved but out the name of Jesus. Jesus is the only way this is going to happen. 
And then you have to preach salvation through faith. Only Jesus, only Jesus can do it. You also have to show faith. You can talk about faith all you want to. One old Southern Gospel song said it like this. Life is easy when you're up on the mountain. That's the easy part. You've got peace of mind like you've never known. But the writer goes on to say, but it's down in the valley in trial and temptations. That's when your faith, that's when faith, that's when what you know and believe is really put to the test. It's easy to trust God when there's nothing wrong. Millions of dollars in the bank, the marriage is great, the house is great, the kids are great, the job is great, the church is great, life is great. It's easy to have faith when God's giving you the King Midas treatment. Everything you touch turns to gold. What happens when it doesn't turn to gold? What happens when the house isn't perfect? What happens when the marriage does fall apart? What happens when the children do drift? What happens when something does happen that's bad? What happens when you're in the valley is what matters with your faith then. You have to show faith, not just talk about it. It's easy to talk about faith. Sometimes it's hard to display faith. You have to stand up for faith. What do you mean? If you see that something is contradictory to the word of God, you must stand up against the works of evil. We have to not be afraid to stand on the precepts and principles of God's word. You have to support faith. But the question could be asked, what is this faith that we're supposed to be contending for? What is this faith we're fighting? What faith? You know, when you say fight the fight of faith, what are we talking about? What is that faith? Well, it's verse 3. It's the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The Apostle Paul described it this way to his young protege Timothy. Timothy has been assigned quite a, if you will, important job. The Apostle Paul has taken this young, energetic pastor, preacher, teacher, placed him over one of his church plants as the preacher. And you sent him out to basically be this young church planter for the churches that Paul had been establishing. Timothy's going through a season of life and the Apostle Paul comes to the realization he feels like he needs to give Timothy a little spiritual father pat on the back. I'm proud of you, son. You're making me proud. I love you. Keep doing a good job, etc. The Apostle Paul starts talking to Timothy about contending or, if you will, fighting the fight of faith. But when the Apostle Paul starts talking about that, he first reminds Timothy, Timothy, you've not doing, you're not doing this alone and you're not unqualified or ill-equipped. Because the Apostle Paul says it like this, Timothy, I pray that you would stir up the gift. Well, what gift? Well, Paul answered that. Stir the gift that I know was first in your mother, and your mother had it because it was instilled in her by your grandmother. So I know Granny had it, and I know Mama had it, so Timothy, I know you've got it too inside of you. 
So I believe when the Apostle Paul, or not the Apostle Paul, when, when Jude, the Apostle Jude writes and says, we must contend for the faith for all those that have been delivered down from. The fight of faith we're fighting for is the same faith that your grandparents had. The same faith that your parents had. And the same God that your grandparents believed that God would bring groceries to their table when they couldn't afford to go buy groceries. So what they did was go to prayer meeting on Sunday night and give their last dollars to the church and hope to God they'd be fed that week but didn't know that on Monday morning somebody would come by and drop off the groceries. They fought the fight of faith saying, God, I don't know, but God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and I've never seen the righteous forsaken or a seed beg for bread, so I'm going to trust God's going to provide something for me. And what would happen is God did. I believe when we talk about contending for the faith, fighting for the faith that was earnestly delivered unto all the saints. I believe it's the same faith that when grandparents and parents didn't have money to put gas in the car, but they would basically sell off things in their house to help the church to be able to do things or help the church be able to make mortgage payments or whatever else, but somehow God would send a miracle they never saw coming because they did it in faith. That's what we're fighting for. We're fighting for that same faith. The world we're living in today, everything about this world that we live in is about instant gratification. I would surmise today, I am not a mathematician, and by any stretch, in fact, I despise math. But I would surmise, if I were to just guess, I have no Barna statistics to back this up. This is just a mere hypothesis on my account. That anybody that's under the age of 30 years old, in what I would deem as the entire continental United States, I would say at least 90% of those 30 and under do not truly know what it means to walk by faith not by sight. Now I can't prove that from Barna. I'm just telling you. And you say, how do you know? Because I watch this world and we're living in. They don't mind walking by sight, but they don't know how to walk by faith when they don't have sight. I would contend that people in this world that are 70 years old and older and have ever been to church one day in their life I would say that about 80 to 85% of all 70 and above in the continental United States, I'd say about 85% of people 70 and above many times walk by faith and not by sight. Even if they weren't believers. How do I know? Because people came through things like wars, World War I, II, depression states. People fought in those. They learned real quick that everything may not always be as it was or it may never be the same again. They learned to walk by faith, not by sight because they didn't know what the world was going to turn out like in those days. See, grandparents, great-grandparents, many of them had to walk seasons of life where they had to walk not by sight because if they lived what was by sight, Sight looked really bad. It looked like no hope in sight for their lives. 
But yet they were able to survive it because they trusted that the God who brought them there was faithful to keep them and sustain them through it all. Reality of it is we live in a generation now where everybody wants instantaneous. They want instantaneous salvation, instantaneous sanctification, instantaneous spirit-filled baptism, instantaneous money, instantaneous jobs, instantaneous millionaires. They want everything at the click of a button, the snap of a finger, or the drop of a hat. They think money grows on trees. They think life is just about give it to me now. Why wait? They have the prodigal son syndrome. Give it to me now and we'll see how it plays out later. Ask the prodigal son how well that worked out for him. He got it all then and when he played out, he didn't like the end result. The society we're living in, and I'm not even just saying church world, I'm talking about even our kids and grandkids, but it, apply, it applies to the church as well. We're living in a society where teenagers and kids have been given everything they've, been, they've won. They don't appreciate the value of earning what they have. I would say that some reason some people don't take church, church attendance, tithes, offerings, other things in the church seriously is because they don't appreciate what God has done. God's been good to them and they might on the surface say, yeah, I appreciate that. But they don't really value what that means to, to really, truly be thankful for what God's done. I'm not saying if people don't come to church every Sunday night or don't pay tithes every you know, week or whatever. I, that's between them and God. I'm just telling you that in the olden days and in days gone by, especially the 20s, 30s, 40s, the world shut down on Sundays across America because everybody went to thank God for favor for that week. When pilgrims came across and they had to survive harsh winters and only survive by the help of some friendly Indians up near the Virginia and Massachusetts area, when they held what we call was the first Thanksgiving, they shut the whole town down to literally just have a week or have some days of Thanksgiving, because God, you got us through a hard season. You got people nowadays, Miss Carol, as you come. You got people nowadays, God will do something incredible in their life. You may get them to come about two Sundays in a row, and then you don't see them again, because the crisis has been averted, and it's over. Sometimes they'll come during the crisis, but as soon as the crisis is lifted, they're good. I would admonish us to never allow ourselves to become prey and victimized to the idea that it is okay to just put God on a shelf like a good book, grab Him when we need Him, and shelve Him back when we don't. It's not how God works. But yet that's how most people live their life. Do they not? Most people, if God should come back tonight, just that quick. The Bible describes it as the moment of as a twinkling of an eye, as quickly as you can blink. He could come. I can't put a percentage on it, but I would dare say it is a large number of people in this world 
that if you asked them right now if God should come just like that, would you go? They'd say yes. But I surmise you there's a lot of people that if God truly did come just like that, they would be standing there trying to figure out why they got left behind. Because they thought they were all good. Because they had heard some pastor, some preacher, some motivational speaker preach to them a state of apostasy. And they bought into the lie. They bought into it. Don't let your life, don't let your eternal status with God be left into the hands of another man or another woman. You better make sure you and God have it right. You and God better have it right. Because the devil is crafty and he is cunning. I don't think he always comes, shows up at the front door, rings the doorbell with little horns, a pitchfork, dressed in black garments with red all over him, going, I'm the devil and I've come to make your life torturing. I don't think he shows up like that. He works his way, he weaves his way, he creeps in unaware. Oh, may it never be said of God's church and even this church that we allowed ourselves to get to a state of apostasy where we got complacent, let anything go, condone any old way to the point that we stopped fighting the fight of faith. There may be lots of churches that are growing right now leaps and bounds. I'm not in their leadership team. I don't know all the details. But I will say to you that I do believe there are a lot of churches that are in this world. Maybe They may be growing and thriving, but everything that has the word church on a sign over the door, they also have the word Ichabod right beside it that people don't even realize. I do believe with all my heart that there are men and women that are going week, day, week by week, every weekend to churches and don't even realize they're going to, to, to a place that's leading them on a path of destruction. I'm not here to judge any other church that's between them and God, but everything that declares that they are the mouthpiece of God and the place that God houses, they're not all mouthpieces of God. May we never allow ourselves to get to a place where we stop fighting for the things of this word. I'm not saying you've got to live my convictions. I'm not saying that you've got to live your grandmama's or your mama's convictions. The Bible said you have to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I, I can't tell you what you and God talk about. What I can tell you, though, is, is that anything that you do is contrary to this is wrong. Now, you can twist and turn and whatever you want to the pages. But at the end of the day, you better make sure you commit this word to your heart. Thy word will I hide in my heart that I may not sin against you cannot stop fighting the fight of faith. Let's pray. Eternal Father, I pray today that the people of God would have heard the words of God. 
you'd speak to our hearts today. I pray that when we get ready to leave this place and go to and fro our destination, I pray that you would lead and guide us. You would help us to not stop fighting the fight of faith. Father, I pray for everyone that watches this service online, streams it later, or those that are in-house today, something spoke to them in this house. Father, right now, I pray that you would bless us, keep us, make your face shine upon us, be gracious to us, lift up your countenance towards us, give us the peace of God that surpasses all human understanding. May the words of our mouth and meditation of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and redeemer. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I'd have you to ask you to stand, if you will, all over the house. Don't forget midweek Bible study at 7 p.m. on Wednesday night. I'm going to ask Brother Mike King if he would dismiss us in prayer. Immediately following his prayer, you are free to be dismissed. God bless you, Brother Mike.